I don't really do introductions. I like <laughs> cut straight into the conversation and uh, okay. and do that. I I, I want to start. I'll, I'll try not to speak too much, but I want to start with this idea that sometimes I have a an interesting life. Then I'll spend. Uh, a Tuesday evening with ambassadors or something at a hotel, and then my Wednesday evening will be at an underground punk show playing music or something. <laughs> and, uh, not many people live that experience, but I do. I, and so I've had the fortune to meet quite a few ambassadors. Some are old, some are young, some are women, some are men, some are smart, some are formal, some are casual. They're they're all kind of different. But what I'd like to ask you first is, what is an ambassador in 2023? And the other part of that question that I would like to ask you is, how do we how do we address ambassadors? Because you know, I I, I call you Philip, and I'm not sure if yes, I should do that. Should. Maybe, but w- our mutual acquaintance, Jacko's wet salute, he would call you Your Excellency. <laughs> so, what is an ambassador, and 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 how do we talk to? How do we refer to you? That's a good question, isn't it? I yeah. think you know the the role of an ambassador has changed quite a bit. Um, mm. If you go back, you know, 100 years or so, it was very different. From today, so today we live in a world where you've got information at your fingertips. You can, you know, don't need ambassadors to tell you what's going on in the world news or in another country. Right. You know, in fact, there are much better sources for that than ambassadors. So, what on earth do we do? Um, to put it simply, I guess, yeah, ambassador is the is the kind of the top point of a um, an embassy, mm-hmm. which represents is the main channel for one government to talk to another one. Mm-hmm. So I would define that quite narrowly, actually. I think some of the other stuff that people think about, ambassadors kind of represent their country uh, in a broad way. I mean, that's true, but it can it can be so broad as to be meaningless and hard to measure. And sometimes, you you know, it, it the core of the role, I think, is representing my government to another government, mm-hmm. in this case, New Zealand to the Republic of Korea or North Korea. Mm-hmm. So where we have a like relatively formal dialogue, um, it'll go through the embassy or through an ambassador. There are other ways of talking as well, but it's important to have those formal channels Mm. uh, when you need them. That's probably it. The rest is um, what you might call um, discretionary value-add activity, stuff that you might do. It sounds like it's useful, but it's hard to measure the value of, and in some cases, others are doing similar things maybe more effectively than we. Mm. So, for example, in terms of representing New Zealand, what does mm. that mean? I mean, the All Blacks represent New Zealand, and they have a way bigger profile than any ambassador. Yes. And so they should. Yeah. Lydia Ko is a representative of New Zealand and Korea yes. and does a fantastic job, and she doesn't need me to help her at all <laughs> with that, right? Um, we have tourist promotion agency. Mm. You know, we have an education promotion agency, people promoting New Zealand trade. Yeah. Again, they... They, some of them work in the embassy, and I support them, and they support me. We work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are those general promotional things we do, and there are some ancillary things. Uh, we look after New Zealanders in distress sure. in, abroad, mm-hmm. uh, but only to a limited extent. As you probably know, mm-hmm. most governments these days are pretty stingy uh, in terms of what they can give you know, traveling nationals abroad. Uh, in the old days, New Zealanders you know, famously would go to London and turn up at the High Commission you know, at the bottom of the Haymarket, and sort of expect to be invited to a party. Just, hey, I'm, I'm from New Zealand. You know, right. I hear you, you, you're our government. You should be here to help me. Those days are gone, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't hold parties for New Zealanders. But New Zealanders who lose their passports or need a, you know, documents um, signed or something, that we have um, a function there. And we do help New Zealanders in emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are so many people traveling these days. 
you know, it's you can't help everybody, and our, so our lo- our role there is is relatively limited. Do we? get to a day ever when we don't have ambassadors? Because you said 100 years ago it was about getting information, getting that on-the-ground, you know, feeling of the street, of the people, of the politics, and sending it back home. Now, as you rightly say, we have the information, we have YouTube, we have Twitter, we have everything. Is there a day when we don't need ambassadors or the role of ambassadors changes, or do you think it's here for the foreseeable future? Not to put you out of a job, obviously. (laughs) Um, I'm not particularly worried for my employment status. I think (laughs) the role is certainly changing and probably getting more restricted um, for the reason you mentioned. As long as we have nation states, Mm -hmm. I think we'll have ambassadors Mm -hmm. to talk to each other. You need a formal channel. Uh, But you're right. Um, I don't need to tell Wellington, you know, what's happening in South Korea. They read the newspapers, The Economist, they watch CNN. Mm. They they read your podcasts or Twitter Twitter feed. So... And increasingly, we were, we, I was experimenting this weekend with chat GPT. Is that what yes. it's called, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I can ask chat GPT to write me a briefing paper on New Zealand's relationship with Korea or any manner of topics, and mm. it will give me an immediate answer, yeah. which is really high quality. So a lot of that informational stuff is not necessary. Yes. Uh, but, you look, at the end of the day, you will always, I think, need relatively smart and experienced people mm whose job is not to uh, create information or just collate and report information, but to make sense of that information. So there's always going to be a question, okay, this is what ChatGPT says or Twitter or CNN, but what does it really mean for New Zealand or my government in this context? And that's a hard question to answer. Mm. And I don't think ChatGPT can quite do that. Mm. And I don't think it ever will properly. You're always going to need the human eyes over it making sense of it yeah. uh, and then you know making decisions what should we make of this uh, whether it's a policy change in south korea a threat from north korea mm. international geopolitical developments you know so i think there will always be a role yeah. but i think it is getting much more specific and more narrowly defined around that role of your formal channel between governments does that require different characteristics of the ambassador then? Because if the if the role is changing, the requirements of changing, that means does that mean that the people because you said we don't want the AI to do it, we still want this human interaction. Does that mean the type of people are required? If you look around the, the diplomatic community or core, is is there a type and you know, that's that's an ambassador, that's a diplomat. Is the is the type of person required changing or is it just as the variety is as wide as you would find professors or doctors in terms of personality and the way they carry themselves. Crikey, that's quite hard to answer. I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to generalise about doctors or lawyers, but <laughs> look, I think there are there are there are some core skills which are reasonably common. Okay, but I think you're finding an increasing diversity of diplomats and ambassadors these days. Um, I see that diversity, obviously, in, in gender, ethnicity, background, mm. age. Um, we're seeing that among political leaders as well, right? Yeah. I mean, I've our Prime Minister has just uh, changed. Our previous Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, is 42. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some very young ambassadors these days. Another point I, w- I should have mentioned earlier is that the nature of government-to-government dialogue has also changed a lot. Mm. In the old days, you would write a long message to an ambassador, send it off by you know anything from pigeon mail to, <laughs> to a to telegram, itself, yeah. you know, yeah. and it would be yeah. delivered by the ambassador at the other end, perhaps in another language, mm. in person, mm. you know, very formal, slow, cautious communication. Yeah. Now, you know, my prime minister will text her colleagues mm-hmm. or his colleagues around yeah. the world. 
And ambassadors then kind of, we find ourselves kind of, kind of racing to catch up with what our political leaders are saying to each other. Yeah. So that creates a different relationship. But in terms of the, the variety of people, I think, um, you know, some, some things are, are fairly, I think, core to what's likely to make a good ambassador. And that's just um, understanding, being able to understand um, people, complex situations, difference, being able to make sense of it, mm. being able to kind of problem solve for your government, for your country. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, any, you can have any kind of diversity of person, ethnicity, whatever, and age to achieve that, but yeah. you need to have those core skills, I think. Yeah. But you also asked another question, which I completely missed answering, which was around how ambassadors get treated. Well, that, that's, uh, we've, in terms of how people address you or should address you, but I'm also curious about, because I've, I've never had the experience and I never will of, when somebody finds out you're ambassador, or because they might not immediately know in Korea, what, what's the kind of reaction? Do people become a little bit more closed, stand off? Do they immediately fawn over you? I, I'm not sure because I've never walked in your shoes. And so everyone will react differently. But how does it feel to be an ambassador yeah. in, in terms of how people treat you? I think it varies a lot from country to country. Okay. Uh, and I've only been ambassador in one country. I've been a diplomat in many. Yeah. But... Uh, Korean society, uh, and I'm sure you'd appreciate, David, I'm for a New Zealander, is very formal and mm. hierarchical. Yes. You know, the, the Confucian influence is clearly very strong. And people are very respectful of seniority and rank. Mm. And for them, an ambassador is quite high-ranking and typically senior. Yeah. So they're very deferential, polite, well-mannered. <laughs> New Zealanders are not. Um, I won't say the opposite. <laughs> yeah, sure, but... Sure. Um, you know, f- among New Zealanders, ambassadors, I think New Zealanders struggle to understand what that means and how they should relate to someone called an ambassador. Yes. And New Zealanders typically treat everyone the same, whether you're the prime minister or, you know, a shoeshine or a mm. whatever. Um, in Korea, New Zealanders come here and we get surprised at how deferential people are towards ambassadors. Mm. And I think New Zealanders struggle with that a bit. It's not a natural um, relationship for us. And having said that, I, my first year in Korea, I remember pinching myself at how, how kind of easy it seemed. Mm. Access, to, access to influential people was very straightforward. Everybody I met was so, so delightfully polite and friendly and constructive and um, spoke beautiful English. Mm. And I was thinking, it, it, was, it took a while for the penny to drop. It wasn't because I was such a wonderful human being or that they loved New Zealand or they might. But that's how they treat ambassadors. Mm. And I realized that I was also really relating to the only dealing with the elite yeah. of the country, the ones who speak beautiful English, who've probably been educated at Oxford or Stanford, mm. um, who run much of the government and business. And that's how they behave towards ambassadors. Mm. Whereas I wasn't meeting people on the street. Right. Or at least when I did, they didn't treat me that way because they didn't know I was an ambassador. So <laughs> it, cha- it varies a lot. And sure. I think Korea would be up there among the more respectful, deferential societies in the world. And New Zealand is probably towards the other end. <laughs> and neither of them is either wrong or right. They're just different ways of, of approaching the problem. Did you get to meet, this might seem like a silly question, but I ask a lot of them, so be prepared. Uh, did you get to meet many people on the street? You, you, you're talking about hobnobbing in elite society with Oxford-educated people that run governments, and, and that's part of what life is here for, for a man in your position. Did you get to meet many people on the street? Did you get that sort of, people will not like this term, but authentic Korean yeah, experience? It, yes, but it, it takes time. It's much harder to meet them. Mm. 
particularly because of the language barrier. Uh So I've made a bit of an effort to speak Korean, and that helps a lot. Mm. Um, Of course, when you meet a person on the street, you don't say you're an ambassador, right? right? So it's a different relationship. Mm. You're talking to the person at the the, the vegetable shop or the Pyeongijom. Um, and obviously, the long I've been here five years now, so mm. we've made some really good Korean friends, um, most of whom speak English, but not all. And so we're able to just develop a more extensive network of people outside yeah. or going beyond that elite bubble at the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been fantastic. That, that's really opened my eyes to the diversity of Korean society. Yeah, that's very cool. You, you just mentioned language and... Your language skills are quite good, though, so perhaps not Korean. I, I don't know, so I'm asking you about this, but Japanese, French, uh, some Chinese, Mandarin, I'm not quite sure. Mm. That's quite an impressive skill set, though. Yeah, so I, I think everything's relative, right? As mm. they say, and I don't want to be sexist, but in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, no, right? No. To impress people, all you need to know is a little bit more than the person next to you. It's true. <laughs> in a it's language, true. it's very true. So yeah. um, one of the lovely... Uh, stories about Korean and Japanese language learning for me mm. is they tend to be very complimentary if you can say aimaseo or kansamida. Mm. Um, the compliments diminish as you get better, <laughs> right? And yes. this is lovely. Yes, and I there's do. something there I about do. I don't know. Uh, people are very respectful and you know polite to people who are clearly amateurish. The 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 less amateurish the other person gets. Mm. They, the, the fewer compliments you get. And I like that. I think it's really cool. Um, but um, it makes for an interesting experience. So mm. I would so in terms of judging your language ability, it's yeah. very hard to... You know, no one ever speaks perfect language except possibly for those lucky enough to be born in two languages. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, look, I, I, can, I can work in Japanese. I can work in French. Yeah. I can work in English. I have some conversational proficiency in Chinese, in Māori, in Korean. Wow. But I wouldn't go further than that. But again, one of the great things, I, I love languages. I'm fascinated by them, uh. particularly North Asian languages. And one of the things language learning, especially in Asia, teaches you, I think, is humility. Yes. And the better you are at it, the more humble you are because you know how impossible it is to be perfect. Even monkeys fall from trees, yes. the Koreans might, might, might say with this. Um, I love this idea that people get more critical of you when, as you get better because they expect more. And I, I do like that. Is there, this is broader rather than personal, I guess, but is there a growing uh, requirement for people in your positions to, to have language skills when they go to parts of the world? Because I would imagine in the past it, it might have been nice but not necessary, or maybe there was an even a requirement that they don't have it so that they can remain a little bit more aloof in that society. It, do you have any sense in the diplomatic community, is it becoming more and more important to say, well, if you're going there, you do have to have the language? It's complex. Um, I'm not gonna give you a simple answer. Are you sure? Um, there's a variety of things to say here. One is um, I'm lucky or unlucky mm. enough to be born in English, as an English native speaker yes uh, of course go back a hundred years the language of diplomacy was french mm-hmm. and every diplomat from any language uh, any country would have been expected to speak french is that why you speak french no it's not it? at all it's okay. coincidental <laughs> but uh, <laughs> helpful but coincidental um but in those days uh. you know so english speakers would have had to learn french mm-hmm. typically especially in europe yeah now um in the last since the Second World War, I think that has switched around. Now, English is clearly the language of diplomacy. Mm. Now, for English la- native speakers, it's a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. Everyone speaks your language. Mm-hmm. 
yippee. And the need for English speakers to learn someone else's language, I think, has significantly diminished. Mm -hmm. And I think this is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. um, there's a kind of a dominance of English spreading, which is, you know, it reduces diversity mm -hmm. and it makes the English native speakers lazy because many of them just don't need to try to learn another language. The others will try to learn English. Mm. Secondly, we're seeing the emergence of a new language, in my view. People say, what's the world's most commonly spoken language? You know, the typical answer is Mandarin Chinese. Uh, emoticons? Emoticons, perhaps. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. But I think another fast-growing language is English as a second language. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which is, is a different kind of English, right? Yes. It's the English spoken yeah. by non-native speakers to each other, mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. all understand each other perfectly well. But if you speak, uh, if you get, for example, a, a Japanese speaking English as a second language mm. to a native New Zealander, they probably won't understand each other very well. That's true. Yeah. But when the Japanese talks to, um, you know, an Indian or um, a an Egyptian speaking English as a second language. They understand each other perfectly. They don't use complex phrases or slang or make weird jokes or yep. cultural references which are obscure. They stick to the structure, simple structures and get on perfectly well. Yeah. And I would actually like to see English native speakers learn that language. English is a second language. Yeah. <laughs> but, look, but, but going a yeah. bit more seriously, like in our ministry, we, we actually put a lot of priority in language training, including in Korean. Mm -hmm. We train our young diplomats in Seoul in the Korean language for two years. I learned Japanese as a young diplomat for mm. two years, mm. and I believe it's very valuable and important. But as I say, there is this bias to English, um, and I can see in um, in the English-speaking world a lot of excuses now being made for not learning languages, and we have technology excuses. Yes, we've got Google Translate. Yes, right, and we'll, we've got Papago. Yeah, and all this. Know, it's so easy now to got to get away with it. Mm that I think the risk is it makes, it makes us lazy and, and diminishes the perceived value of learning those languages, which is unfortunate. I sometimes, in a weird, uh, counterintuitive way, I'm jealous of people that came here in the 60s and 70s before computers and before translators and before um, applications you could put on Google Chrome that would automatically translate all the yeah. pages for you or, yeah, yeah. or Twitter will automatically translate tweets for you. But... They didn't have that. They had to either know it or not know it. And it was out of necessity. I love this idea that it's to our detriment as, as native English speakers, that English has become the, the lingua franca. Mm. I, I heard you speaking on one thing um, where you said, and I might get some of the details wrong, but an official language in New Zealand now is Maori. Mm. And if somebody speaks in New Zealand parliament mm -hmm. in Maori, mm -hmm. there's no translator. It's up to the people around to understand it. Correct. And I, I think that's a fabulous idea to, to put the onus back on learning things. Yes. Yeah, and, yeah. and we get more perspectives of the world, don't we? Well, we, we I think we do get a learning and struggling with Korean, and I, I still do it, is has really helped me understand the people so much better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. So, and there's a broad experience. It's not just learning the language. You know, when you do that, you're, you're trying to deal with a whole different culture and way yeah. of thinking and so on. Yeah. So you're learning a lot more than just the words. Yeah. But And often, as I said earlier, I mean, even if you don't become perfect, and we hardly ever do become perfect, mm. the, the, the effort to try mm. uh, is very rewarding in itself. It is recognized and appreciated by the people whose language you're trying to learn. Yeah. And I think it makes you a richer, a better human being. Yeah. So it's that experience of trying. You know, as you say, the experience of not understanding something 
Mm. It's very important to know what that feels like because most of the world feels that most of the time when you're talking. <laughs> it's, it's, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I want to come to this idea of Asia in a minute, but before we do that, we, we've spoken about ambassadors, Phil, and things. Mm. But for 18 years, you were a businessman. Mm. And so you go 18 years in business. And I, I, I have no idea how old you are. Am I allowed to ask? That I'm 62. Thing? You're 60. You look good for 62. Thank you, David. You carry, so you're you. really 62. <laughs> yeah, I'm really 62. Yeah. What's the secret? Is there a secret? I mean, you have a head of hair. You're thin. You seem. You have a youthful energy as well. I would suggest. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you said compliments work, but how do you how do you stay 62 in, in that sense? Because you come across younger. Well, it's kind of you to say. I don't know. I, mean, I think um, I enjoy doing what I do now. Um, if, if that gives me positive energy, that's that's fantastic. Um, I guess sixty is the new forty or something. You know, we're <laughs> going to live into our well into the hundreds, right? Yeah. yeah so yeah. We, you know, I'm not even at the halfway line, perhaps. Fair enough. I don't know. Um, what was your big what was what was the transition from so eighteen years in business and then to ambassadorial life? I mean, was was one more free? Was it a big change? Was it very different? Like, was it a, a change in responsibility stature? Did you have? More freedoms, more doors opened. Uh, what was that like, that change? So I'd been a diplomat before. So I started off as a diplomat for 12 years, then left and went to business for 18 years and came back again as a, an ambassador. Mm. So I kind of knew what it was like okay. as a junior diplomat. So that made it a lot easier. Um, there were a number of differences. You know, the, the many would be predictable. Uh, being in a government is a lot less free. Mm. You know, there's a lot less devolved authority. Uh, the measures of success are typically much more opaque. You know, you're not being driven by a sales target or okay. you know, profit or, or um, you know, numbers so much. That's, that's not to say you can't measure, mm. but it's it's less the 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 measurement and the tan the tangible measures of success are are, are, are less clear. Um, at the end of the day, you, you're only you're no more than an advisor to someone else in government, unless mm. you're a minister or the prime minister, everybody else is advising you, mm. right? Advising mm. someone. So I advise, as an ambassador, I advise my government and the government or the ministers take a decision, which I then implement. Mm. In business, there's a lot more devolution, you know, so a lot more freedom uh, down down the chain to go and do things yourself and then be held accountable for that. Mm. And there's good and bad about that, sure. as you can imagine. Um, much of, I, I think, organizations are similar the world over. Right. People ask me if I prefer the public or the private sector. I don't mind. They're both interesting. They both have their pluses and minuses. You know, I think business is typically more dynamic, mm -hmm. um, more more immediate in its rewards and challenges, um, more exciting in a way. Uh, government is a bit more, um, certainly foreign policy can be a bit more cerebral, a bit more kind of, you have to think more carefully or slowly mm. uh, results are, are slower to happen um, pluses, pluses and minuses but either way I actually prefer being offshore rather than onshore because I find the headquarters mm. of organizations whether they're government or private to be very similar yeah. uh, headquarters tend to be inward-looking bureaucratic you know, process driven being out in the field whether you're a diplomat or a salesperson or just a representative of a company overseas mm. you know dealing with customers stakeholders um, that's much more fun for me. I've enjoyed that a lot more. You've spent a lot of time offshore, yeah. though, haven't you? And, and, and you've spent a lot of time Shanghai, Tokyo, Seoul. So 
some might consider you perhaps an old Asia hand. I'm not sure if that's an appropriate expression anymore, but that, that might have been in an old Graham Greene novel or something like that. Asia, you know, itself is a very difficult term. It's, it's kind of a construct because what is Asia? But you spend a lot of time in this region of the world, let's mm. say. Mm. Um, geography aside, what makes Asia Asia? What have you learned about your time here? Is there anything unique to this region? Having spent such a prolonged period of time, not just in one place, but around the region and with the people in public and private, what what have you learned from this? What have you? It's a weird question, but you know why I'm asking and what to get it. Do you have an image of this part of the world? Or? Well, I think it's a, it's a very hard question. Yeah. But, and one that New Zealanders actually grapple with quite a lot because New Zealand is... You know, I think it, we have a little bit of an identity problem as a country. You know, I don't think we've quite worked out who we are as a people in this corner of the world. What's the clash between? Where would well, the, there uh, are lots. And I think this happens in many countries, but New Zealand is a very new creation as a nation state, right? We, mm-hmm. We're the first part, we're the last point on the planet to mm-hmm. be settled by human beings, right? So we're very new. Mm. The Māori people arrived in about the 12th century. Mm. It's only 900 years ago. Uh, even Hawaii is older than Aotearoa and New Zealand. Uh, we had the Māori experience, um, history. Then we had colonization by Europeans. And more recently, we've had uh, massive immigration from other parts of the world, like in like Asia, China, mm-hmm. India, and so on. So this has created a complex you know, mix of ethnicity and identities. Yes. So it's an interesting question to, to ask New Zealanders what... How do you identify? Um, and I think there are multiple identities. Mm-hmm. This is typical of most people. You identify with your family, maybe your school or in, in career. Typically, your school, your your school group, your university cohort, mm-hmm. your company, uh, maybe your family. It's only your family. Maybe your broader family. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe your region. Maybe your nation. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think for us too, at an international scale, New Zealanders often identify multiply. I think they identify as Kiwi, as New Zealanders. Mm. Uh, within that, they have ethnic or different ethnic identities. So uh, I just checked the stats before coming. So New Zealanders identify as 70% European, whatever oh, that wow. means, white European. Yeah, okay. 18% Māori, 18% Asian, 9% Pacifica. Now, you'll quickly work out that's way more than 100%. Yeah. So, so people. some people are identifying as more than one. So when we think about Asia mm. or the Indo-Pacific mm. or the Asia-Pacific, I think people have multiple levels of identity. So our immediate identity would be Aotearoa, New Zealand, our country. Then I think New Zealanders would go the Pacific, by which we typically mean the South Pacific, particularly mm. Polynesia, mm. You know, where um, Māori, Hawaiian, Tahitian, Cook Islands, Samoan is very much the same family of mm. languages. Then you've got Micronesia, Melanesia, language, ethnicity is very different. But New Zealanders, we see ourselves as a Pacific nation. Mm-hmm. We also see ourselves as part of um, this hemisphere, which includes a great chunk of Asia. Yes. Right? So, and a lot of New Zealanders, well, 18% of them, describe themselves outright as Asians. So, and then you've got folk uh, like my family. My dad was born in the UK, mm-hmm. who, and some of us identi- well, take our roots back to Europe, particularly Britain. Mm-hmm. Others take their roots back to South Africa or um, who knows where, in North America, all over. So I think you know, it's a complicated question. Yeah. And then to say, what is Asia? 
well, Asia itself is is not one thing, mm. right? Yes. Uh, but clearly, having said all that, you know, there's a there's a there's a there are some things about North Asia in particular, mm. which uh, uh, I think you can say there are some characteristics that are identifiable and quite different from New Zealand. Mm. Um, I've had the privilege of working in Japan, China, Korea, as you say, uh, and in some ways it feels like completing the triangle, winning the trifecta. Yes, uh, you know. So China, you know, for me, and this is very general. So was it China first? No, or Japan to, first. Japan first. Japan first. Mm-hmm. And for me, okay, starting with Japan. Japan is is an extreme, I think, among um, countries and peoples in some ways. They're very reserved, mm-hmm. very formal, very group oriented, very peaceful, mm. very considerate of others. You know, consideration for others is a major virtue. Yeah. Um, which you know can translate also into being hard to read, difficult to communicate with, not expressive. Mm. True, but yeah, I think compared with that, the Chinese would you know, typically be much more outgoing, quite boisterous, energetic, ambitious, um, family-oriented for sure, but um, much more you know, fond of um, getting out there, doing things. Mm. And you can see this in things like um, love color. They love red and yellow and big spaces, come okay. together and have big, big parties, noisy groups, Huge amounts of food on one table, going around the round a round table. Mm. You know, it's um it's a joyous place. Yeah, Korea feels like an interesting combination of some of that with you know with a confusion overlay, mm. where you know way more expressive than Japan. You know, Koreans love demonstrating every every weekend in Guanamun. Mm-hmm. Someone yes. will be demonstrating about something. You know, you don't die wondering what they're thinking. Right. Um, but I think for the Koreans, they look at China and they go, oh, but we're not quite as out there and. In, in your face, as it were, as, as some Chinese might be. Mm. No. I had some uh, gr- uh, visiting group of students from Singapore in the last uh, cohort, the, co- the last group that came over, and they asked me after a few days, do Koreans always protest, David? <laughs> and I was like, yes, <laughs> yes you, you got it. I don't need to teach you any more about Korea. Yes, they, they do like a protest, and, and that's a good thing about it. There's always noise. When I first came to Korea in 2005, I was based in in Gwangamun, in the big duty-free building. Oh, yeah. So it was every night when I finished work, I would go outside and it's like, well, how am I going to get home? It was difficult because there, there, was that, there was that constant noise. They are, they are as similar as they are different. I, I, I can completely get that. When I asked you about this, uh, Phil, you, you spoke a lot about identity mm. and you spoke about the makeup of New Zealand and how it's changing over time and mm. how it equals more than 100%. Mm. Um, and... Identity is a big thing mm. these days, isn't it? Identity. I I went to school in um, various places. One of the places I went to school was in Haileybury College in Melbourne, in mm. Australia. And I was always told there, identity doesn't matter. We were colorblind. That was the message of the 1980s. Uh, it was 1980s. It, well, 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 this is uh, what yes. I mean, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and with your age. But now we're talking about identity. We're trying to be sensitive. We're trying to, to listen and recognize how it is important. And I, I, I teach young people all the time. I, I understand how important it is. Have you noticed? Because I've noticed it. I'm just curious if you have any comment on it. The change in identity becoming more important and it does matter that we identify either as this way as this way and in terms of ethnicity or whatever it might be yes definitely i think that's right and just putting a new new zealand lens on i think new zealand's own experience of um identity 
our experience or our perception has significantly changed even during my lifetime. Um, when I grew up as a young kid at school, they used to teach us assimilation. Do you remember that? So the best approach to, for example, we have like Māori and Pākehā, white people living together in one country yeah. in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And until about the 60s, the received wisdom was that we should assimilate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Right? Which is yeah. basically everyone becomes similar. Yeah. Right? And we thought that was cool. That was the thing. And then later on, people say, oh, no, that's not, that's not so good because assimilation uh, can erode difference. Yes. And difference is not necessarily bad. So what we should do is integrate. We should have integration, not assimilation. Right? That would have been about the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but even so, it was generally, yeah, and that would have been, I think, similar to what you're experiencing in Melbourne, people going, uh, we should just kind of ignore the fact that we've got different ethnicities and characters and just treat everyone exactly the same. It's like a soft approach, soft multiculturalism, I've seen it described in that yeah. way. Yeah. You integrate. So everyone is able to be themselves, but you kind of don't talk about it. Yeah. You don't promote or champion it, but it's just that kind of quiet. That's right. Yeah. And you champion um, common values. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think now in New Zealand, we are, as you've alluded to, at a different point where we are putting more priority on identity or at least more, what's the word, curiosity yeah. around identity, more appreciation that um, it's very fundamental to p- people's lives and personalities and happiness. And you can't just iron over it, no. pretend it isn't there, no. uh, or, or kind of you can't assimilate or, or even integrate and just ignore it and hope it will, you know, go away. It doesn't go away. <laughs> uh, in fact, you know, we, so in some ways, it's a more honest approach, whether it's the best or approach, I don't know. But so I think our approach is certainly to ex- accept difference mm. and even champion or celebrate difference. Mm. But even if you can't celebrate, at least certainly be aware that it's there yeah. and not try and look through it, ignore it, make it go away. And I think it's very important for particularly countries like New Zealand, where you've had a colonial experience. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no doubt the white people came into New Zealand, the Pakia, and they did some horrible things to the indigenous people, the Māori. Those things don't get forgotten. No. You know, the white people might want to forget. Mm. The Māori won't forget. And forgetting is not an option. We have to deal with that somehow. And I think that's part of, that's where we've got to today. How, okay, we're not ignoring it. Let's manage it. Let's work with it. Uh, but we still need to find a way through it. I agree with you, and and in history and memories and these things don't go don't go away. Despite our whoever might want them to, is there ever any conversation between South Korea and New Zealand in terms of colonial experiences? That's that's a very weird one because I would not immediately put them in the same bracket if I think of post colonialism in the post World War Two era with the the post colonialism in in Africa and things like that. I wouldn't immediately put New Zealand. Uh, and South Korea in the same bracket, and perhaps that's my own ignorance. But now listening to you speak, is there ever any conversation about colonial experiences between Korea and New Zealand, or are they too different? Great question. We've started recently started thinking about this, actually, mm. um, partly driven by my foreign minister, Nanaya Mahuta, who's the first Māori woman foreign minister we've had in New Zealand. And she's taken a very um, indigenous approach to foreign policy, well, she started talking about an indigenous approach to foreign policy. What might that be? Now, I think she's, she's, she's laid out some ideas, um, and she's kind of challenging us as diplomats and the New Zealand 
government and community to kind of take that forward. And this is very interesting. She's visibly married. I, I just want to make sure that I'm imagining the right person as well. The, your foreign minister, though, I, I, want, I want to be sensitive about it, but she is visibly married, though, oh, isn't yes. she? Oh, yes. yes. And yeah, she yeah. has a, a, a phenomenal, a great moko on her chin, like a tattoo on her lower mouth and chin, which is traditional for Māori women. It's called a moko. Moko. Oh, okay, yes. That's yeah. who I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah, she's very striking. Yes. You won't miss her in a crowd. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. No, but, so what is this? It, it sounds like a good idea, right? Hey, uh, consistent with this idea of, of putting more, um, trying to understand identity. Mm. And clearly, indigeneity is very important to many New Zealanders. Mm. So shouldn't it be part of our foreign policy? What would that mean in talking to the Republic of Korea? Now, Korea, you know, famously, I guess, um, well, it, it seems on the surface a more, much more homogenous place than New Zealand, mm. um, but it's had a, a similar colonial experience. Mm. So one of the thought experiments that I've been doing with my team here is to say, look, just imagine as a thought experiment that um, Japan didn't lose the Second World War and they were still the colonial occupiers of Korea today. Mm. How would that feel to a Korean? And one possible answer to that is that's exactly how the Māori people feel today. Wow. Get your head around that one. Yeah, you know, no, right? I because I know, I, I don't know, but I empathise with how it feels to Korean people even though it was 35 years and it finished in 1945, I know how deep those wounds still cut. And so to imagine that it would still be going today. And that's the reality in New Zealand, right? The colonizers didn't go away. They hung around and they dominated the country. 18% yeah. of Māori uh, of the country is, I now identify as Māori. And look, they're, you know, they, are, you know, they are disadvantaged in all the statistics. Mm. Um, and there's no doubt that a lot of that disadvantage is derives from colonization. Uh, now, this takes a lot of fixing, mm -hmm. remedying, and we are still you know, trying to work out how to do that. Korea, even though it's 70 years long, 80 years after colonization by the Japanese ended, mm. I think many Koreans would stay there still also working through the scars of that. Mm -hmm. In fact, President Moon would say so explicitly in his speeches. Yeah. Talk about the deep-rooted evils of society that needed to be you know, eradicated. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, your career is still dealing with a colonial experience. Mm. So is New Zealand. So can, should we as diplomats, as governments, talk to each other about this? Talk to our, have our peoples talk to each other about it? Did the thought experiment ever go anywhere? Did you ever get any reactions? Did people fall off their chairs? Or And I'm also trying to wonder, and it is sensitive, so you can avoid it if you want, but whether in that thought experiment, the lessons to be derived from it would be for the South Koreans or the New Zealand or the Maori? Do you see how it would... Was there any response to your thought experiment? Because it's <laughs> this, an amazing one. Well, I, it's, it's, it's a thought experiment. You yeah. know? And um, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not a scientific experiment in which you kind of can prove or disprove any particular theory. Mm. Uh, so are we, are we just still working that through? I think people are, like you, intrigued by the question, mm. both that particular one, but also just intrigued by the possibilities of having more dialogue of this sort. Um, I think you do see this around uh, diplomatic circles to some extent. Uh, if you go into um, the United Nations, for example, yeah. these sorts of discussions are increasingly held in international fora. Uh, we talk about the global north or the west versus the global south. Mm. Um, you know, we used to talk about the, you know, in the old days it was a, th it was a third world, that's all gone. 
but then we used to talk in, in economic terms only about developing countries and developed mm. countries. I mean, but now I think we've moved on from that. And we're talking increasingly about a new kind of identity, right? North, south, west, yeah. whatever, east. And, and what does this mean? So but part of that international dialogue, I think, is uh, an increasing acceptance that the experience of colonization mm. is part of the reality of, of modern international relations and is one of the things that bedevils it. And we need to, we, there's an opportunity to, to talk about that more and maybe by talking about it actually make things a bit better. You know, there's some great examples. I mean, South Africa clearly is the best example of a, of a national truth and reconciliation process mm-hmm. between two wildly different ethnic group, more than two, um, you know, a, a terrible colonial experience that they're now trying to kind of get right. Mm. Uh, and, and they are undertaking a sort of a national experiment there. Many countries look at that and go, yeah, that's, that's what you need to do. And many countries go back and look at their own history, like New Zealand, go, actually, we, we have our own points of pain, mm. conflict, driven by the colonial experience, which we should probably talk about in a similar way. You know, the, the South African experience, as I understand it, I wasn't part of it, but, you know, it's, it's designed to be constructive. You know, you look at the past not to kind of blame, but to draw lessons. Mm. And the point is to reconcile, find out the truth, what happened, in order that you can then move on from it, make peace with the past and mm. with your, you know, competitors, and then move on, create a, a, a more positive future for your country. So if you can do that nationally, you can do it internationally as well. Now, I don't know what the Korean response to that is. We haven't really talked to many Koreans about this because mm. it's complex. Mm. So I think principally to your question, it's helping us as New Zealanders with our own journey of working out what it means to be a New Zealander. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that nationally, internationally, reconciliation, looking at the past, trying to come to terms with the history. Everybody has a different personality. Mm. We all have different MBTIs, blood types, and things like. Did you do an MBTI? Test? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> several times. Yes, I won't. I won't ask you, but uh, I think that was all just data collection. Personally, <laughs> I think they were trying to get all that data and sell it to the companies. Um, people have different personalities. Is the point that I'm trying to make? And some people, um, this doesn't go across like a political spectrum. I don't think. Maybe it does, but some people want to look forward, and some people say, "No, the past is the past. Let's go forward. Let's do this." And is there an argument to be made for that side as well? Because we sometimes do see that in Korea, that some sides want to reconcile and they want to address it. And other people, they might want to say, let's move forward and and, and let's do these things. That doesn't just apply to colonization. That might also be with sort of romantic relationships or mistakes you've made in the past, childhood trauma or things like this. Is there an argument to be made the other way or is it? reconciliation and a focus does seem to be the correct approach it's hard to say that reconciliation itself is a bad thing the question is how you get there right Um, so I agree I think absolutely different personality types different uh, and we see this as in nations and communities too Mm -hmm. so there are different approaches and I don't think any one is better than another but the point is to try and have a a discussion which includes everybody Mm. and don't just assume that one way is you know is the best uh, but we see this across the board. I mean, maybe a, a great example right now would be Japan, Korea, right? I don't want to get political, but mm. clearly that's a very difficult 
deep-seated relationship with a lot of anger and pain and conflict in the past. Some people say, hey, we should just move on. And, you know, others say, no, we've got to understand that kind of spend time thinking about how, how it happened, mm-hmm. what happened, accept that and accept that before we can move forward. Mm. And I don't know, I mean, I think different people have different approaches, but I think any kind of effective process is going to have to include those voices on both sides in both Korea and Japan. Yeah, yeah. well said, and I completely agree with that. Um, This is getting into, into, treacherous is the wrong word, this is getting into dangerous waters with these, these politics. And so if I can... Can I point you towards 1991, your first time in South Korea? Oh, right. My research is good. Yes, 1991. Yes, bang on. Um, but what I want to ask you about this is because it, it fascinates me so much is this idea of what did it like smell like? What did it taste <laughs> like? What did it sort of not about the politics and the and the United Nations and these things, but that that kind of. That visceral, that physical, what was it like? Where was, what was it like on the ground level? Can you, yeah. I'm asking you perhaps to try to cast your mind back 30 odd years, which is not an easy thing, especially at your age. But any, yeah. what yeah. was it like on the ground, yeah. Phil? So first off, I'd, I'd go right back to when I was a kid in New Zealand. Yeah. And um, my parents were Catholic and they contributed to charity and put some money aside every month. And they didn't have very much. My dad was a school teacher, primary school, okay. and my mum was a homemaker with five kids. They didn't have much money. Wow. But way back in the 1970s, I think, they started giving money every month to a charity which sponsored a family in Korea. No. This is right. That's beautiful. Right? And I don't know how much they gave, but every, and we never met the family. They would write us occasional letters in Korean. Mm-hmm. And every, every year, I remember, they would send us to New Zealand a beautiful handmade silk doll as a thank you wow. gift. And it was like, we, you know, we never met them and we have lost, we've lost touch with them. I don't know what happened with that family. I suspect now they're richer than my parents. <laughs> <laughs> they sell silk dolls. They've got, a, they've got a business on the internet. To that's right, that's yeah. right. But, you know, so that, that was going way back. This my kind of image of Korea as a very poor country that we would give charity to. Yeah. And then, as you say, I first came here in 1991. I came, part of my experience is I came when I was um, based as a diplomat in Japan. Okay. So traveling from Japan to Korea in 1991, you can imagine the contrast was huge. I can't imagine. I would imagine it'd be similar. No, it's not just 1991, like, no. this is when Japan, the people were writing books about Japan's taking over the world. It was the number two economy in the world. Tokyo's land, you know, the Imperial Palace, people said, was worth the value of California. I'm sure that wasn't true. But and Japanese cultural products still banned in South Korea, I believe. Indeed, that's that right. Yeah. That's right. And And... Korea was just out of democracy, uh, just into democracy, out of mm. dictatorship. Uh, so yeah, the contrast between, uh, I was coming from a very rich China, um, Japan, mm. which at that stage was kind of top of the pile. Coming to Korea, which was still, you know, halfway through its, its journey to be a, 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 a rich, you know, country, mm. the country it is today. So um, that colored my perspective. I remember coming into Seoul and I it was... Well, different for today. It felt flat. Mm-hmm. Like today, you look at Seoul and it's like forty-story Prugio apartment blocks, right? All over, all over, yeah, the, you know, all over. Not just Seoul, but Gyeonggi-do, right? Mm. In those days, that didn't, that wasn't there. It was, it was low-rise, like I guess four or five-story. You know, this villa mm-hmm. style. Yeah, yeah, yeah of, the, the villas. Yeah, and, and it felt 
low rise. Oh, wow. You know, which is quite different. Um, it certainly felt like a developing economy at that point. Mm. It was definitely much, much poorer. Infrastructure was way less developed. Uh, it felt a lot more aggressive. Um, I think the heavy drinking culture was very noticeable. I would come over after that through the 90s and see friends. And then I came across as a business person and we'd go to drinking with customers. And it was like, you know, drinking in divey, chimek, you know, mm -hmm. soju places till late at night, every night. Right. Um, so it, it um, and I also remember that there was a very small foreign community uh, and one of my friends was a diplomat in Seoul and he invited me around to the Grand Hyatt Hotel on a Sunday afternoon. Mm. And it was the same hotel. It looked much the same as it does now. But it was like, it felt like it wasn't the only one. But it f my friend said, this is the place where foreigners come on a weekend to get together. Wow. Yeah. Because there were so few and so few places to go, perhaps. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Now, there were other. I mean, the Lotte Hotel was there and a few mm. other nice ones. But, you know, you could imagine the Grand Hyatt stood out yeah. in those days. It wow. was probably the largest building in Itaewon, certainly in that type, sort of part of town. Yeah. So it really felt very different. Uh, and then I, I came in back and forth over the years since then. And um, But I didn't live here until I came here in 2018. And coming here, I mean, many of those things have disappeared. I mean, now it's a high-rise city, not a low-rise. Yeah. It's got some of the world's best infrastructure. Um, the drinking culture, I'm astounded how far it's changed. Yeah. I know what you see, David, but it's, it's still there to some extent. But it's not nearly as ubiquitous... Um, and as scary as it used to be. There are sometimes memes on the internet of sort of businessmen and salarymen like passed out on the streets and that, but that's that, that feels to me like 10, 15 years yeah. ago rather than today. Yeah, exactly. Is it, it's the wrong word. I don't mean offense by this, but there's this, with modernity comes this civilizing process and it doesn't mean civilizations from other places, but in terms of etiquette and behavior and things like this. Uh, a KBS director, Lee Taeung Gamdokdim, he said to me once, I worry that we're becoming too much like the Japanese. Mm. We're becoming too polite. We're becoming too yeah, yeah. sort of reserved and controlled. And you don't sort of see much in the way of outburst or things yeah. on the street anymore, do you? That's right. I, I, that's right. I don't know if this is good or bad, but I, I, I kind of observe something similar that it feels like it's becoming actually less extreme. Mm. Or, or the extremes are becoming more moderate. You know, it's a bit like the, the rough edges or the sharp edges are, are being rounded. You know, in the old days, you'd have demonstrations, but people would pour petrol on themselves, you know, yeah. light fires. and uh, Learn how to fire, throw Molotovs. Yeah. Throw Molotov cocktails. I mean, there's much, much less of that now, it seems to me, than there used to be. People are still demonstrating. Yes. But they're doing so in a more controlled, orderly fashion, <laughs> you know, killing fewer people. The police don't kill people like they used to. No. That's good. That's... Okay. <laughs> um, so... So, you know, there's a sense of, I think that's right, of, yeah. of becoming a more mannered society. Mm -hmm. And I can understand some Koreans finding that a bit, um, what's the word, not necessarily being comfortable with that because they might feel they're losing something of the Korean personality along mm. the way, maybe. Yeah. There is also this other idea that um, I, it might have been in Professor Lee nam book that I saw it in when she was talking about the Minjung, the Undongwon, the, that... If you take away our demons, you also take away our angels. Mm. If you take away those things that are sort of the violence or, or, or these kind of things, you're also taking away the things that made us great, that, that made us drive, that made us strive, that got us over the line, that got us to democracy or development and things like that. And I thought that was a very interesting art, uh, idea 
that it's less chaotic now. Yeah. There is no chaos. And so you don't get the bad things, but also you miss out on some of those very exciting moments. Certainly. I think this is a real uh, thing. Um, and for I think modern Korea, um, I'll come to this issue later on. I've got a question, an answer to one of your questions, I think that um, is relevant to this. But yeah. Korea has gone through this extraordinary sort of set of three revolutions, it seems to me. One is the economic miracle, which we all talk about. Mm. The second is the democratic process. I won't say miracle, because miracles are made by God. You know, progress is made by humans. And the Koreans made these things. Yeah. They've done a fantastic job yeah. in the economy. They've done a fantastic job on democracy. And now they've done a fantastic job, third time round, on social, um, social capital, on yeah. creating the cultural miracle of Hallyu. Yeah. It's absolutely extraordinary. The question, I think, for Koreans now is, what do you do with that? You've been so successful. Mm. What's left, as it were? It's been like a sports person. You know, someone just won the Australian Open last mm. week. Mm. When you've achieved all those goals, yeah. how do you keep driving yourself forward to the next one? Yeah. And don't you lose energy, motivation, uh, maybe confidence? It's like a rock star coming off tour and then finding they can't get that high again and things like that. Because no, we've been here and you were here during sort of the parasite boom and the squid yeah. game and the BTS. And these are incredible highs. And if you saw the way sort of Korean people were reacting to those Oscars and those Grammys, there was this wow. And then another one and then another one. And you're right. How do you react to that? There's also this other idea that interests me, which is part of Korean success, part of it, only part would have been that this underdog mentality. Mm. And that mm. works well in sports and teams and things like this. If it's us against the world, you build that mentality, that in-group, and it motivates people, right? Mm. And I think Korea has had that. Mm. We are going to show you. We are going to show that we are Korea number one. But now that it is, can it use that as a confidence? Can it change from that underdog mentality that maybe some people might take umbrage with that uh, characterization but yet i wondered can it then do something with that confidence and that ability to say well here we are and we don't necessarily need to prove ourselves as much anymore yes i think that's very you've articulated that well it's a real challenge and i you know i think we should you know, take out i take my hat off to to the korean success it's yeah. absolutely phenomenal yeah. but uh, you say as you say you move from being an underdog where expected uh, success is unexpected and you've moved to a situation where career is expected to be successful and to continue to be successful, mm. to be the best in the world at not just the economy and democracy, but at, at, at K-pop and drama and um, a whole bunch of other things. Now, and, and that expectation of continued success is really, really hard to live up to. Mm. So, for example, you know, one of the, the measures for me is this extraordinary phenomenon that it's not just drama and K-pop, BTS and Blackpink and Squid Game and so on, but, you know, the first meme to hit a million hits was... The first meme to hit a million hits. I, I, enlighten me. I think it was a billion hits. I've forgotten. Gangnam style. The, the music video. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And the, Baby the, Shark is the number one. Well, exactly. Yeah. And then the first one hit 10 billion yeah. was Baby Shark. Yeah. They're both from Korea. Yeah. You know, so you've created this track record of success. Yeah. And now the world's lining up going, this is phenomenal, and expecting Korea to continue to perform at that level or and, and just go and do, continue to do amazing things. Mm. That's pressure, mm, it and it's is. very hard to sustain that kind of success. So, you know, one question is: uh, Are we seeing peak? You know, is this career's mo moment in the sun? Mm. What happens next? I'm very curious about that too. Whether this will be because 
it was Japan's moment in the sun. You mentioned that in the, in the 1990s, where that was the next big thing. It was going to take over. It was the rival and uh, um, whether it was the Hong Kong movies of the 70s. You know, every country will have, not every country, countries will have this. And uh, what does South Korea do when the next generation of people are not necessarily looking at K-pop? They might be looking at something else by then. What does Korea do then is a, is a really interesting question. But as you said, with those three revolutions, considering all it's done thus far, I wouldn't necessarily have a bet against you Korea. That's right. no, like, I'm, not a, <laughs> I'm not necessarily a betting man, but like you say, the success they have achieved. Maybe this is the wrong time to jump to it. But when we said about the what it's achieved now and the, the pressure that comes with it, with some of those pressures, however, will also come sort of a requirement to live up to more international values, mm. won't it? And that might be with, let's say, uh, refugees or aid, or w we see the situation in Ukraine at the moment. Because of its growing stature, it's then also required to move from being a country that kind gratefully received money from your parents in the 70s to now providing that money to other people. And that's an interesting yeah. challenge for it, I think, isn't it? Yep, definitely. And well, the Korean government itself, you know, it says Korea is the only country to have gone from being a recipient of ODA, of Overseas Development Assistance, to being a major donor. Mm. The only one. That's phenomenal. So um, yeah. uh, maybe That's pressure is cool. the wrong word. I think it's just a question of um, they're setting very high standards, right, and constantly have, have exceeded those mm. you know, standards and ob objectives to date. Uh, you know, it kind of gets harder and harder. You have to run faster and faster right, mm -hmm. to achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll, we'll see what we get to. But you know, it's very interesting to see the current government under President Yung Song-yeol set out what he calls the global pivotal state uh, approach to foreign policy, which is very much what you've described, accepting that with power comes responsibility. Mm -hmm. Korea is now you know, at the top table of the world, uh, having been invited to the G7. You know, that was, in a way, the moment mm -hmm you could say when Korea arrived. Mm. It's a it's a top 10, number 10 economy in the world, sixth largest military in the world. You know, they've got, um, and they have um, ambitions in many other areas. So ODA, mm. development assistance is one. I understand under the new um, Indo-Pacific strategy, Korea is now setting itself an ambitious target of being top 10 for ODA. They've already announced a massive increase this year of 18% development assistance. Good. So fantastic to yeah. see that. And that will be yeah. very welcome and influential, including in our part of the world in the Pacific. Uh, but it's expensive, right? And this is going gonna to put, you know, there'll be a question about how, how this can be paid for, what the um, burden on the Korean people is going to be, mm. and also what the expectations of foreigners are going to be. Because as I say, I mean, you've created the success. Now everyone looks to Korea mm. to solve their problems for them. It's not just expensive financially, though, is it? There is a toll that seems to be taken on the people. I'm not sure if you see this toll, but this uh, some people might describe it as this compressed modernity, this rise to success, these three revolutions. Sometimes the stories that resonate uh, most widely abroad are, are sort of negative stories about Korea, whether it might be related to mental health or gender struggles, suicide rates, especially amongst the elderly and the young people. Mm. We're seeing... Uh, a growing number of drug issues emerging, still relatively low compared to other countries, but yet climbing nonetheless. And I wonder if it's not just a, an economic toll, but there's also a, a, a social or a psychological toll in the way it is pushing towards this. Um, 
maybe that's just modernity uh, and that's how it goes was the the silk doll did that inspire you to go to Japan? I know I'm jumping back, but I wanted to ask it at the time, because I guess for a, for a, a young man growing up in a, a Catholic family with four siblings and heading off to this part of the world might not have been the, the normal kind of port of call. Did that, did that have any effect, do you think? No, I don't think so. Okay. Sorry to disappoint you, but <laughs> yeah, actually good. it's kind of, a, I think, the opposite story. I'm, I, I was always fascinated by the outside world, outside New Zealand, and wanted to, you know, experience life in other countries and yeah. uh, cultures. Uh, but I had no particular idea about where. And I remember when I was a junior diplomat. By this yeah. stage, I was in my early twenties. And when I joined the foreign ministry, they they gave us opportunities to learn languages. And in those days, we had a choice of, you know, Russian, Chinese, Arabic. Um, Japanese, um, Chinese, Japanese, a few others. Mm. And um, I thought, oh, I want to do one of those. But I didn't really mind which one. Just something, <laughs> and, yeah. And in yeah. those days, um, I said to my boss, oh, I don't know. I, I said Arabic for no better reason than I think I quite liked um, Sinbad the Sailor and Tales of Arabian Nights and, you know, the Thousand and One Nights and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's too good. much reading under the pillow at night. And my boss, actually, at the time, this would have been 1986 or seven, took me aside and said, really? Why mm. Arabic? And without, with all due respect to the region, he said, look, at that point, we just had two oil crises. Um, he felt that the economic balance in the world was shifting away from the Middle East mm. towards North Asia. And he said, he said, I think you should have a look at Chinese or Japanese. What an astute fellow. Indeed. Yeah. And I thought, sounds good to me. And I had a, a friend who was similarly interested in a language, and she was va vaguely thinking of Chinese. So I said, well, you take the Chinese slot, and I'll take the Japanese <laughs> one. So it was simple as that. Yeah. Um, but I think my boss was absolutely bang on. You know, yeah. he, he, could spot, he spotted the economic momentum coming to North Asia, and that serendipity changed my life. Yeah, wow. Some of my earliest memories are getting in trouble for staying up all night reading. Hmm. Under the blanket, yeah. like with a torch or something like this. Exactly. Do you still read? Yes, absolutely. Any, One of life's great pleasures. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, anything that you've read recently that you, you've enjoyed or you've not liked or you want to read? I, I just want to turn you on to books because I don't want to turn you on to books. I would like to turn the conversation to books. Yeah, sure. The last book I read, marvelous thing called Metropolis. And while I'm talking, I'm going to try and look up the author because I can't remember Ben something or other. Okay. Um, I think a British journalist, historian. It's a story of world cities. <laughs> Some British. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's just a it's, a, it's a marvelous, quite short history of the city, which he describes as Ooh. mankind's greatest achievement. Wow. And he starts from, you know, the, the 5000 BC and Mesopotamia mm. and goes through the Middle East, China, the growth of Asian cities, Western cities, mm. you know, uh, and to the modern age, and ends up in um, talk, talking about Shanghai, Los Angeles, and Lagos. That's amazing. Yeah, so extraordinary I really book. Want to read that. Now. It's really, really good. Uh, Soul features quite heavily in there. Does it come away positive? Negative? I mean, because it would be possible to do some sort of Marxist analysis where we're putting all people into boxes, or does it come away a little bit more celebratory, or is it? Uh, it's definitely more celebratory. Uh, he's not blind to the challenges of living in cities. Yeah. But part of his narrative is the way our own views of cities change, have changed through history. So, for example, uh, if I got this right, um, there are moments when the city was vilified, mm -hmm. seen as a place of 
of um, poverty, crime, danger, sin. Mm. Um, think uh, Manchester. Okay, let's go there. <laughs> yeah, and he, he talks about Manchester and Chicago in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, workhouses uh, exploiting you know young kids and and women and workers. Um, slum conditions, crime, drugs, sex, mm. prostitution, all that. But then there are moments when the city is celebrated. Uh, and he, so he talks, for example, Paris in the mid-19th century. Sure. Right? Um, and modern celebrations of the city include places like Dubai mm-hmm. or Asian cities. Um, you know, some parts of what Seoul's done. So the Chonggi Chong Stream you know, creation. Lovely, yeah. um, so attitudes towards the city. Change mm. through history, you know, and they oscillate between those poles of of vilification and celebration. And he says, "Look, it, it can all be true, but either way, the things. You know, what's amazing about the cities is that they they endure. Mm. There are different kinds of cities. We have high rise, we have low rise, we have spread out, sprawling Los Angeles, and then we have um, high rises like Seoul. Yeah, um, they come and go, but the city itself, as a phenomenon of human society, has." got more and more important and now 80% of the world lives in one yeah 80% maybe I've got that wrong but a big majority now live in cities I would believe it yeah I any opportunity I can I like getting out of the city like I I like getting out into Gangwondo I was raised in countrysides and things like that I I enjoy being able to see the horizon it's good to have choice right if you're raised in the countryside yeah it's amazing how fascinating a city is yeah 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 Absolutely. I don't know why this has come to me, but you said when you first came to Seoul in 1991, um, it was it was kind of flat. This morning I was talking about uh, Kiribati going back into the yeah. Pacific Forum on yeah. the World News and yes. uh, uh, with Fiji. And what part of you were mentioning sort of micro Polynesia and, uh, and these various things. Where is Kiribati in that? So Kiribati is in the North Pacific. Kiribati. In the is North a, Pacific. Is a massive Pacific Island Territory. Yeah. Uh, north of the equator, mostly. North of the equator. So we would call that um, Micronesia. Micronesia. Uh, but it's an absolutely massive amount of land. We, New Zealand, we started referring to the Pacific um, not as a big blue ocean, but a big blue continent, which kind of Ooh, captures that's nice. the sense of, you know, you think about a big blue ocean, so there's no one there, yeah, yeah. and it's just water. Yeah. Whereas we want to convey that, okay, the population's relatively small, but there's massive resource, huge amount of area, mm. some significant populations, uh, and a place to take seriously. The reason I bring it up is um, apparently when one of the early gentlemen there, a missionary was translating Bibles, he, he couldn't get the word mountain because they just didn't know what one was because everything was so flat. They were like, what's a mountain? He's like, this is about, what's that? And they just had no sort of comprehension of what a mountain was at that That's time. That's fantastic. Yeah, no I, way I, for I, snow either, I guess. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, you, we talked about Seoul in 1991. We talked about the changes. You're leaving Seoul. Indeed, in a month. In a month. Am I allowed to ask where you're going? Uh, so I've, I've I've been on contract in this job because I came from the private sector, mm. and I'm going to go back to the private sector. Okay. Um, so we'll go back to New Zealand where we've got a house, but then my partner's Japanese, so I we've plan- decided to go and base ourselves in Tokyo. Oh wow! Going forward, because I, I'd like to do some things, uh, a bunch of things uh, could be in in governance, uh, project work, mm. maybe a bit of teaching and writing. And actually, much as I loved Auckland and New Zealand as my home, 
but my kind of area of interest is East Asia. It seems to be, yeah. And Tokyo is a great place to base yourself to, you know, be able to join in work in that in that area. Mm. It's fascinating that there are still things that you want to do. It's not like, well, yeah, I'm going to go and put my feet up. I'm going to go and retire and things like that. But you're already saying there's private sector and governance and teaching and things like that. That's that's, yeah. that's wonderful. Well, in fact, that book I just described, one reason I liked it so much is I finished it and thought, damn, I wish I'd written that book. Are you going to write a book? I'd love to. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to have written a book, if you yeah, yeah, know yeah. what I mean. But, the actual but, act. Right. Of, but this was yeah. actually that book. Uh-huh. I get yeah, it. I really, I really liked it. It just, yeah. it just it, it resonated with me a whole bunch of ways, both the, the subject matter, the narrative. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly the kind of book I would like to write. Mm-hmm. So that's <laughs> – damn it, he got there first. But um, I'll find something else. I, I, I will read it if you write that, I tell you. The, the tri- completing the triangle. Yes, exactly. Uh, um. Can we talk a little bit about values, please? Because different countries have different values. And I remember doing some some research and study on diplomacy when Tony Blair's New Labour comes into Britain with Robin Cook as the foreign secretary. There was this idea of an ethical foreign policy when we go abroad. We don't leave our values at home. We take them with us. And it's about projecting one's domestic values overseas. And I guess what I've seen from various parts of the diplomatic community, whether it might be the the American embassy with uh, Black Lives Matter or rainbow flag uh, outside their embassy, mm. whether it's uh, ambassadors from various embassies attending pride events and things like that, there is... I'm not sure in other parts of the world, but what I experience here in South Korea is that ambassadors, embassies are trying to say these are our values. And they might not necessarily always be in line with the values domestically. And how does one square that circle? Because there's the idea that, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Do you have to sort of acknowledge the domestic ones? Or do you say, no, this is what we believe, we want you to recognize? It seems like a very difficult line to walk. Hmm. From the inside, what's it like? Again, a massive question, David. Um, Do forgive uh, me. No, no, no. And look, I, I know that there are um, extremely expert academics out there who you know think about this stuff all the time. No. But as a practicing diplomat, yeah, please. my own view is that values are always part of foreign policy. Mm. Uh, it's a bit of a false distinction. I think what w- you can dial up and down on the explicitness of that. Yeah. So um, let me give you some examples. Uh, you're quite right. You talk about Robin Cook and Tony Blair. Every now and then, governments come up with very explicit expressions mm. of that, say, value, a values-led foreign policy. In fact, we have this in Korea now. Yung Song Yo's global pivotal state is very upfront mm-hmm. about values. But as, as you know, officials in, in, in Korea have said to me, that doesn't mean that Korea didn't have values before Yung Song Yo, right? Korea has always had a, a value values in his foreign policy. Mm. But the, the current president is putting much more e- emphasis on that, putting him up front, yeah. dialing it up. Um, think of examples like um, some countries, famously Sweden, adopted a feminist foreign policy. I think they've stepped back from that, actually. Okay. Other countries like my own have experimented with an indigenous foreign policy. You know, these are all kind of variations on this theme of let's be up front with some values. Mm. 
famously, America is described as a very ideological, values-led country, typically. Mm -hmm. City on the hill. City on the hill. Uh, But to my mind, I think all foreign policy has values at the heart of it. You just have to kind of dig a bit deeper in some cases to Mm. find them. Uh, And countries that say that they don't have values in their foreign policy are just hiding. Right, okay. Uh, I don't want to get too specific there. But, um, (laughs) you know... Well, for example, one principle you often hear in foreign policy is is non-interference in the affairs of others. Yes. There's a value. It is a value. You're right. It's not. They would say. It's not engagement discourse. They're opposed to opposing the idea of some one country imposing ideas on another. Mm. And they say we oppose to that. But that in itself is a value. You're saying it's valuable and important not to interfere in some other country. Okay, that might there's a perfectly respectable point of view, mm-hmm. but it's also a value. Mm. And to describe that as you know, to criticize someone for, for someone else for having value for, when you, when you don't, yeah. I think that's a bit hard to stomach. So it's really a question of I think understanding yourself, what your own values are as a person, as a society, as a country, mm. and then being as what's the word deliberate as you can about the extent to which you want to dial that up or down. Mm. Now, I think typically in the West or the global North, or call it what you will, what I think we see in democracies is people, especially as they get richer, Mm. as they develop more leisure and the ability to think beyond their immediate needs, take an interest in the wider world, the wider society, and they do become more inclined to interfere, if you like, or to express views about what's going on elsewhere. Mm. People start to get very upset about human rights in parts of the world they other than their own. Maslow's hierarchy of Maslow's needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They, up yeah. there, yeah, it's very hard to you know, be high in the hierarchy and not have views about the rest of the world. So I think that drives democratic developed countries mm. to have more explicit values-led foreign policies. Mm. Um, you could argue that countries with less resources that are poor and you know, more, less developed just simply don't have the luxury yeah. to do so. But they certainly still have values and I think that's a big mistake made often by Western countries to assume that we're the only ones with the values. It's just not true. That's very nice. Yeah. What? So it's about they all have them, but it's where the dial is. So if I if I'll just return to this question, I might see that um, at least, and this is only my pers- perspective from outside of the diplomatic community, that there has been a, a group of embassies here that have had the dial turned not incredibly high but reasonably high uh, on certain issues here I don't know how much you can talk about it I, I'll skip it if not but could it have been turned higher was it about the right level do you do you think it's uh, how do you get with that yeah that, that's hard too so I, okay, I can think of something you mentioned the Black Lives Matter flags and the rainbow flag outside the US Embassy very yeah. visible symbols attending pride events Indeed. would be another one so New Zealand there would be more we would see ourselves, I think, in a similar category. I mean, we don't have an embassy that's big enough to put big flags on the walls. <laughs> but we turn up to Pride events. We uh, make public statements about issues in human rights issues around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we oppose the death penalty. We um, have an explicit up there, you know, out there uh, prioritization of human rights in our foreign policy. Mm. So gender rights, diversity, LGBT, death penalty, rights for the disabled, mm. and obviously indigenous rights, yeah. all very important for us. The question then becomes, okay, that's, that's, you say those are your values, and you're upfront about that. We get that. Mm. What are you going to do about that 
and how do you make a difference? So then it becomes a question of what's actually effective. Uh, and that requires a lot of judgment because you can easily go too far and annoy people mm-hmm. by critis- being seen to criticize um, or get be seen to be interfering in domestic politics. Mm. Uh, so some groups in Korea, I think, see see some of the Western countries, maybe including New Zealand, in that light. That you know, you you shouldn't be telling us what to do. We mm. we'll make our own decisions on our own social issues, and you know, we don't you need you foreigners to tell us what to do. Uh, others would say, look, it's appropriate for people to express views. Um, I think New Zealand would say, we draw the line at telling Korea what to do. I think mm. we try very hard not to do that. It's not our role, Don't, and we're a tiny country. What we can do is share with Koreans, the government and the people, our own experience in dealing with those issues. Mm. And we can say on LGBT issues, uh, you know, when I was growing up in New Zealand, male homosexuality was illegal, um, and it was completely hidden, and that created all sorts of social problems for people like myself and others. Um, now it's a very liberal regime. Uh, we've grappled with that social issue mm. for several decades. It was very difficult. It remains challenging for some. And we've arrived at a place that we think is better than where we were 30 years ago. That's our experience. Mm. And we're happy to talk about that. Now, is that relevant to modern Korea? That's really a question for the Korean people to answer themselves, not for me as an ambassador to tell them what the answer is. Uh, a little while ago, I'm not sure where I heard it, but somebody... Somebody told me the most personal is the most universal, and I like that. And so just listening to you describe that, you know, is it relevant to modern South Korea? Well, perhaps not. But if you tell them personally, I mean, from the perspective of the New Zealand nation as it's gone through these things in the last 30 years, just as the the United Kingdom or other countries, well, this is what we did. And just by listening, perhaps understanding and accepting, it might resonate somewhere. Hmm. There's... Do you think this might be uh, an impossible question? But do you think you've moved the needle? Do you do you think you've had an impact? It, it's impossible to measure. Yeah. But uh, when you leave, do you do you think, well, yeah, we did we did all right, or uh, would you walk away going, we didn't do enough, or we, we? Do you get a sense of that? Do you say it's very hard to measure? Yeah, um, it's a big topic, and you know we're all small cogs in big wheels, right? We're just individuals in a country of fifty million people. Yeah. But look, one of the things I'm, I'm really touched by is the number of people that I've been in contact with recently who've said that um, something that, that I've done or the New Zealand Embassy has done has touched them. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One was um, on this LGBT issue in particular, because, I mean, I've been a bit you know, out there in that res- respect. Um, at a coffee shop, I was just, a woman served me coffee and then she realized I was an, as the ambassador and she mm. she said to me, oh, something very general in Korean. Mm. And I wasn't sure I completely understood what she meant. I asked my Korean friend who was with me. Mm. I think, you know, I think she just said, thank you for everything you've been doing for people like us. Mm. And my Korean friend said, yeah, that's pretty well what she said. And I said, what, what did she mean by that? She, well, she sees you rightly or wrongly <laughs> as a role model. And yeah. I think she was probably kind of outing herself in a way, but without doing so in so many words. Mm-hmm. And another one was a, a very young 14-year-old girl. We had a 
an event in our residence where we were live streaming. No, we were, what were we doing? Live Zooming between schools in Korea and schools in New Zealand. That's cool. Kids talking to each other about, I don't know, world issues. Yeah. And this 14-year-old girl from a Korean school had this marvelous um, essay in English, which she, she talked through. It's very impressive. On diversity, on LGBTQ as a, as a secondary school student. Mm. And she came to me afterwards with her teacher and said, um, you know, Ambassador, thank you so much for this opportunity because I wanted to talk about this because you're the ambassador. Mm. And I wanted to talk about this issue, but I didn't think I would be allowed to. But you kind of raised it. And then my teacher said, yes, let's do that. Yeah. And we went ahead and she shared that with a whole bunch of students. So there are stories like that, which are, you know, very moving. To what extent that's moving a dial you know, well, it's moving two dials at two least. Dials, uh, at least two. Yeah, two dials. Yeah, uh, but probably there are people out there who yeah. wish I'd never raised the subject and didn't and, and hate everything I say. But do you? I believe I've also come up to you at certain points and said I like the way w what you're doing. I think your messages are good, not in the same way that these uh, two young women have. But do you think South Korea is getting better? Do you get a sense of that? So not in terms of necessarily what you're doing, but in terms of diversity, in in terms of these values. What I find is people are very quick to compare South Korea today to New Zealand today or to Canada today, France today, some of the more progressive nations around the world and say, well, look what they're doing. Why aren't you like that? And to me, it seems to sort of discount history a little bit and discount the trajectory mm. that Korea is on. Because mm -hmm. as you say, 30 years ago or when you were growing up, there were very different rules in New Zealand mm. and history matters. Do you get a sense? And also, I would like to make this point, perhaps, that Sometimes things go backwards. It's mm. not some Fukuyama and like inevitable thing yeah. that things are always going to get better. They yeah. can go backwards. We've yeah. seen things in the United States with abortion laws and things. Um, do you think Korea is on the right path in general? Again, hard question. Uh, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think things are, things are linear. Right. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's very dangerous to assume that it can only go one way. Uh, and I agree with you that I think there's a there's an Asian context to these issues, gender issues, LGBT issues, which is different from the experience of largely white countries. Mm -hmm. um, and what if you stop, you know, take your suggestion and let's not compare Korea to New Zealand, Canada and France. But maybe if we compare Korea to other Asian countries, what do we see? Mm. That changes the, the lens, I think. It does. What we see, I think, is um, there's only one Asian country I'm aware of that has legalized gay marriage. Taiwan. Taiwan. Tokyo, the city of Tokyo. City of Tokyo. Correct. But, you know, the Jap and the Japanese, I think society is, is now become very liberal on that subject, but the government is not. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Thailand is relatively liberal, mm. but it hasn't gone quite as far as Taiwan. Um, Korea looks... Like it's moving in a liberal direction slowly, but mm. actually in an Asian context, it's probably one of, how do I put this? Um, what is an Asian example? You know, I think Taiwan is leading the way in that sense. I suspect that Japan, Thailand will get there relatively soon. Mm. I think Korea is, is, is different in many respects, not least that it's got a heavy overlay of American-style evangelical Christianity, yes, uh, which is different from many other Asian countries, but um, and the Confucian context is probably another hurdle mm. in th on this particular issue. Confucian's mm. got a lot of you know other you know some great qualities, but in terms of respect for what the 
seniors in society are saying, a respect for, you know, for different gender roles. Mm. That's an additional complication here. Um, but having said all of that, to go back to the conversation we were having half an hour ago, this you know, country, South Korea, has moved, moved so fast yeah. to create revolutions in economy, democracy, and culture in 30 years. Mm-hmm. I do suspect that there will be a tipping point that could happen here faster than some other parts of Asia. That's why I'm still here, because I don't know where this, not for that particular, but I don't know where it's going. I don't know what's going to happen. It mm. seems to be moving forward. It mm. seems to, sometimes I get the sense that not all countries are moving forward. Some countries are on a different part of their trajectory. They're sort of going down or going sideways or something like that. Korea still seems to be taking steps forward mm. uh, in many different aspects. And uh, I don't know where it's going or where the people will take their country, but I like watching it. Indeed. I, yeah. I agree. It's fascinating to watch. I think another difference, if I could just add to that, yeah. uh, is the, the North Korea situation. The yeah. fact that you've got half a million people under arms in South Korea defending their country from imminent threat of attack. Uh, and most of them are men and most of them are conscripted. Now, that's different from pretty well everybody else, everywhere else in Asia yes. also. And, of course, that has an effect on the gender balance uh, perspective of the you know, perspective on gender issues that all the men have to go off for whatever it is 17 18 months at least mm. do this stuff and the women don't um i think that's an issue that we're seeing koreans start to grapple with right now um and that combined with you know an aging population a demographic challenge low, very low the you know, world's lowest fertility mm. these are you know phenomena that are not unique to korea but um, in that, I, oh, the mix of it is very specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the lowest fertility rate, um, a demographic cliff coming, but a massive threat from the north. Yeah. And this, this conscription of men, but not women. We don't see that anywhere else in the world. We don't. And I sometimes raise an eyebrow when I see articles talking about gender issues that don't mention that mandatory male conscription. Because as somebody that teaches gender and, and these issues in Korean studies classes, that's that's one thing I make sure to teach because there's that deprivation that these – and that's uh, – General Chan Inbom has described it. That's what they're meant to do. They're meant to be deprived. They're meant to feel that deprivation and isolation <laughs> for 17, 18 months and the uh, – Maybe and, they feel it too much. Yeah, it, it's either equality or it's not. It's a very difficult one. You are we'll, – we'll come back to youth, I promise, but just while you've touched on this, just very briefly, you are also the ambassador to, to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. That always used to get more attention than South Korea. It used to be the exciting one. It used to be the thing that got the news headlines, mm. right, for, for, for better or for worse, probably for mm. worse, definitely. Mm. Um um, this is a question I want to ask then. Is it something we should be worried about? Is it something that keeps you up at night? You just mentioned this sort of their military force or what they're doing. That's how you describe them. Is it something that should give us pause for thought in terms of fear? Of course. To, to, to what extent? I mean, is it? Mm, yeah, OK, this is, this is very difficult. Uh, You've got... Uh, um, Two highly armed countries. Yeah. Um, you have an armistice, uh, so a war that is still formally not finished. Mm. Um, very nasty rhetoric, especially from the north. Um, you know, c- countries that are growing up quite separately, not talking to each other, and feeling that the other is, is, a, is a threat. Mm. Uh, and yet very, very close. 
increasingly heavily armed, and now with nuclear um, technology on the north and, of course, on the, on the south through the United States. Yeah. It's a very dangerous situation. There's no doubt. In some ways, you could maybe argue there's a fourth miracle on the Korean Peninsula, which you can call the miracle of deterrence mm-hmm. so far. Mm-hmm. For 70 years, you know, it's kept, it's avoided major conflict, small conflicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mercifully, there hasn't been a massive outbreak of war. That looks to me like another miracle. Again, yeah. I don't really believe in miracles. So let's put it down to, you know, the foresight of the Korean people and their efforts to secure peace, which has been successful. But it's it's contingent. Mm-hmm. Deterrence works only until it doesn't. Mm. And it only needs to not work once. That's right. No. So I, gr- I think it is a highly dangerous situation. Korea is absolutely right to be very anxious about it and to do all it can to prepare itself, prepare to defend itself if necessary. Mm. If I can, just one more question on North Korea, which is that the United Kingdom established diplomatic relations with with, with North Korea in, in December 2000 mm. and uh, placed an embassy. Mm. Dr. Jim Hall went over there and we put people there. And that was the decision under Tony Blair and Robin Cook. That was all mm. part of their mandate. Mm. I, I've heard you suggest previously that... Uh, I, I paraphrase your words that New Zealand people wouldn't perhaps citizens wouldn't find it appropriate to put an embassy and an ambassador there in the current climate. Do you have any observation on other countries putting ambassadors there? Because you, you've served as the ambassador to the Democratic uh, People's Republic of Korea from South Korea. Is there any kind of like, yeah, I should have been there on the ground. I could have done something or it's like, no, we leave them. COVID is obviously a... yeah. A thing. Uh, well, we've only got a limited number of embassies around the world. New Zealand's got about 60 posts in total, okay. which is not that many. No. So there are many, many countries where we have no diplomatic presence at all, and that's entirely normal. So we would only put an embassy in where there was a national interest at stake that yeah. would be clearly and materially advanced by having an em- embassy. I don't think North Korea has ever made it to that level of significance for us, for New Zealand. Mm. Other countries, clearly it has. Um, in fact, in our case, um, I certainly had hoped to get to North Korea during my time here. Um, but it's not that we have no contact with North Korea. We we do have contact occasionally at international meetings or, or through uh, other capitals. North Korea's um, nearest embassy, to, well, the, the embassy through which they accredit themselves to New Zealand is actually in Indonesia. Oh, wow. So they cover Australia and New Zealand from Indonesia. So we have occasional contact in Jakarta or New York or even Geneva. Um, so it's not that there's no contact. Mm. It's rather – and we have from time to time um, been prepared to uh, – we used to send ambassadors up to Pyongyang r- occasionally, if not regularly. Uh, but we haven't managed to do that since 2014. And that's simply because every time we were like prepared to go and you know make the trip and present credentials or whatever mm. – uh, the North would do something really outrageous that made that impossible. They would do uh, uh, yeah, more m- missile tests mm-hmm. or uh, some provocative action, which we just could not, uh, in good faith, accept. Yeah. So there's been a bit of a question of timing, but basically for the last what is that now seven eight years we haven't, you know, there hasn't been a clear period, absent um, bad behaviour or provocation from the North that would enable us to kind of renew the dialogue, and so mm-hmm. we haven't done that. We may at some point in the future, if, especially if North Korea's behavior changed. But right now, as you say, uh, COVID's made it impossible for the last mm. two and a half years anyway. 
No one's getting it in and out of North Korea. We don't expect that will change quickly, though it might. Uh, and if and when COVID goes away, uh, if North Korea returns to, it shows some willingness to resume dialogue with the international community, not just New Zealand, but you know the general community. Yeah. Then I think we'd you know be open to reviewing our, our position. But right now, there's there's nothing to be gained, as it were, by going and trying to put a New Zealander into Pyongyang, even if you could. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I guess that's probably the, the the longer context for why I think New Zealanders would don't not see any particular reason to mm-hmm. you know to spend a lot of money, taxpayers' money, trying to make a dialogue to to, to create a dialogue with the North with North Korea at this point. Seoul seems a more exciting place to live than Pyongyang. Doesn't yeah, what's going on? You wouldn't be able to do this podcast if you're in Pyongyang. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I just have a couple more for you while you're here. Um, can we speak about youth? Because when I've met you, but and I get this impression from you, but it's not about our youth, but your you seem to me to be interested in youth. And when, when you spoke earlier about this, this young 14-year-old girl doing her baby, there does seem to be, a, you know, you want to listen to what people are saying. You, you want to see what the, the next generation is saying. And that's not always the case, I think. There, mm. there are some people that get to a certain age, and it might even be 30s, 40s, whatever it might be, that say, we have the wisdom, we have the experience, the, the youth, they're all gone wrong and things like this. But you seem to have demonstrated an interest and I wonder why do you believe youth are important where is your focus on youth come from or am I misreading it interesting question I kind of find it really obvious so it's interesting that you know yeah. maybe others don't actually see it that way but look I, I'm I love history um I would love to you know I'm, I'm a historian monkey um and one thing I love about history is you, you study the past in order to kind of try and understand the present and perhaps make guesses about the future. Mm. Well, how are you going to do that without talking to young people? Because the future is entirely going to be created by them, not us. Yes. Um, I think the second <laughs> point for me is is part of is similar to what we were saying earlier about learning hard languages like Asian languages. Mm. It makes you humble. History makes you humble Ooh. because who who would have predicted Putin would invade Ukraine? You know, who would have predicted Park Geun-hye would be impeached? I don't know. Uh, so as you, as I get older, I get more and more modest about, you know, aware of the pitfalls mm. of predictions of all sorts and of the, of the limitations of knowledge. You know, simply the older you get, the more you realize you don't know. And that's part of the beginning of wisdom, right? So that's why, for me, young people are so interesting because they, they are going to create the world ahead yeah. of us. And it's not going to be like, what it is today. So that sounds all very you know, ethereal, but some specific examples that I'm intrigued by. One is the way young people communicate. And I know you've talked to, I think, your, your students about this. People don't answer the telephone anymore. <laughs> we don't no, have no, telephones anymore. No, no, no. Right? no, no. Um, uh... Even my staff, I mean, and I find myself doing it now too. You know, unless you know who it's coming from, I don't answer. And even if you do, you might say, just send me a text. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Young people seem to be more comfortable texting and writing than speaking, yeah. which has an interesting set of implications around it. Um, another one is the impact on all our work of AI. Uh, and I was just talking recently to the, the foreign minister, actually, who was talking about he's real passionate about this. 
Uh, and in fact, he's created an avatar of himself oh, wow. with Korean technology, which um, by which the avatar can project him uh, speaking any language. Oh wow! Realistically. Oh wow! And is you, it a sort of animation-based avatar? Is it kind of it's a video? It's a video. Yeah. Like, so if it, you take if I take three minutes, apparently according to this um, Korean technology, yeah. if I get three minutes of video of you talking. Mm. I can make you say anything oh, wow. in any language, mm-hmm. realistically, and it will look like you. It's not you, but it will look like you. Now, there's that, and there's also, um, I've just recently been experimenting with, I think I mentioned, chat, um, yeah. the CG, whatever it is, CGT. Again, incredible resource. Mm-hmm. You know, write me uh, a speech. Yeah. Uh, write me a report. Tell me about the history of something, and it will do that instantly. Now, how is this transforming work for young people? Mm. How's it going to transform diplomacy? I find these things incredibly interesting. Yeah. Um, and you just send your avatar onto podcasts. Maybe you should. Well, and then there's the question of even if you can do this stuff, because these are just new tools, right? Yeah. It's like moving from you know, the, the horse to the, the, the car or mm. from the, the, the gas light to electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're moving into AI and avatars and so on. What do you do with that? What, what are the opportunities and challenges and what are the protocols that we need to put in place around that? Mm. We're tearing ourselves to bits at the moment about social media, mm-hmm. right? What is the best use of social media in society? And I think people are starting to realize that there are real downsides to social media. Mm-hmm. There was a period of worshiping the Googles and Amazons and so on. I think we've fallen out of love with them. Yeah. Uh, but now we realize that like it or love it, you have to live with it. There's good and bad about it, as there is with most things. How do we regulate or impose protocols on social media, on Google and Amazon and all the rest of it, to keep people sufficiently safe, yeah. but also exploit the opportunities they provide? So we're going to have the same thing around AI. Uh, what does that look like? If you can create an avatar of yourself, speaking any language to anybody anywhere in the world, what would you, could you, should you do with that? Mm-hmm. What shouldn't you be allowed to do with that? Yes. Do they have rights? Are you allowed to make sort of uh, deep fakes and and, pornogra- and and impersonate and things yeah. like that? And if you put too many rules on it, is that not just limiting the idea? Because it's meant to be the most liberating thing ever. So uh, a, a friend, not a friend, an acquaintance, Theodore Junyu, a professor out of Yonsei, he's doing all this metaverse stuff mm. with a company uh, down in Sokto. Mm. Uh, and he put me in this 180 cameras around to put me into the metaverse, right? And he did all this to make me a digital asset in there. <laughs> and he said, David, what kind of character do you want to be? And I was like... <laughs> And I thought about it and I was like, well, I want to, I don't know if this is offensive, but I said, I want to be a, a transgender archaeologist because I'd never seen those two words together. And if we're going to do something like let's do something that you're not allowed or yeah. you're not meant to do. We, I want to be creative with yeah, it. Yeah. Do you know, if yeah. I said like a boxer, I'm just vicariously living out my fantasies from youth or something. Yeah. So it, it interests me why, where the lines should be drawn because I think we're too ready to draw lines sometimes. Yeah, yeah. and I have no idea what the answers are. Yeah. But I think um, the answers will be provided by the youth, the young people of today. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why they're so interesting. I mean, if they were the same as us, I, they'd be less interesting. You'd worry, wouldn't you? <laughs> have you two books while you're speaking, Surveillance Capitalism, yes. I thought was a very interesting yes. book. And another one, which is a bit older, which was uh, Black Swan. Yes. 
which is about that you cannot predict the events that will come. So people didn't predict COVID. They didn't predict the impeachment of Park Geun-hye. Of course, there will be an article somewhere online that you can point to, but there'll be something big happens this year that will dominate Korean news sphere in 2023. Mm. We have no idea what it will be yet. Mm. And that's that black swan idea that I find fascinating. I was just talking to somebody recently about quantum mechanics and quantum computing, mm-hmm. and I know nothing about it, but I get the sense that that's a kind of a new branch of computing which deals precisely with infinite variables. Mm. Yeah. So if you want to find a black swan, maybe a quantum computer can help you find it. Oh, maybe maybe they're wrong. But, so, <laughs> but you're right. There's so much stuff that's out there, yeah. uh, and uh, whatever happens next, it's going to be surprising. Abs- yes, yes, and and... Have some faith in the youth. I think that's the the conclusion that we're drawing here because they will they will find the messages. Um, just as we draw this to a close, I did. I, I, your own prime minister has recently stepped down. Mm. I just want to touch on this one very quickly. Prime, prime Minister Arden, widely respected. I, I thought she did a fantastic job, and I don't know all the ins and outs of New Zealand politics. And I do forgive me, but. I wouldn't have been on the ground level experiencing her policies as well. But from what I did see from afar, seemed an incredibly empathetic person and putting herself into the role, not being empty, not being Mm. shallow, not being a valueless politician, which I think is sometimes very easy to do. Mm. But the way she stepped up uh, at certain points when there was uh, national tragedy and showed herself being... I I just thought that was a... um, a very pleasing thing to see, and I think her international reputation uh, it does well. You now have uh, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins mm. leading the Labour Party. Just, do you have any comment on domestic New Zealand politics? You probably because it's usually I, a career killer for a diplomat, of course. Oh, okay, but let me try to phrase it this way: do, Does domestic politics affect the life of a diplomat abroad? Because that was framed in that value yeah. section, right? Uh, so. Yeah, to uh, some extent, and that extent to varies from country to country. And I think uh, in New Zealand's case, I would say yes, but not inordinately. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a Westminster-style system uh, where we oscillate between left and right, yeah. basically. every We have elections every three years, and we've got a long history of... Every three? Yeah, very, very short wow. terms. So uh, there's a movement to make that four because some people think three is too short, but mm. it's three at the moment. And we have traditionally moved you know, between basically a conservative party and a progressive liberal party, a progressive party with some other smaller parties for some time. Mm. And, you know, w- that's that's been our experience. Now, with it, you know, obviously, new governments come and, and change some policies, but we also have a, a largely career uh, civil service mm-hmm. and diplomatic service, uh, a few political appointments, but largely it's career diplomats, so people who serve either stripe of government. And I think for most of us, it's not that difficult, mm-hmm. partly because the oscillations are not that extreme. Right. You know, we're not having dictators come in and say, oh, you know, just completely do something outrageous or on either side. Uh, and I think that's the one of the beauties of the democratic system. You know, if, 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 you, you're able to adjust and accommodate switches in popular opinion mm. without having to turn the oil tanker around completely. Mm. You can adjust your course. And in foreign policy, that's largely how we've done it. There have been some moments in foreign policy where governments have have turned the oil tanker around. Mm. I'm thinking um, 
the government back in the 80s that uh, basically banned nuclear ships from New Zealand. And as a result, the ANZUS alliance with the United States was ended. Oof. That was massive. Yeah, that would have been. Um, but short of major changes like that, that's very unusual. Most of the time, you know, you're able as a diplomat to just adapt to mm-hmm. to the new lot. And it's typically a question of emphasis. It's not like you know, you're massively chucking out old values and bringing new ones. It's usually a matter of emphasis, certain values against other ones. It's the dial again, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that's, as I say, one of the – I would see it, that as one of the benefits of a Westminster-style democracy. It, it provides that kind of – what's the word? Managing mechanism. You mm-hmm. can adjust – the, the diplomats, the, the civil servants are able to adjust according to the electoral results, you know, what the people are thinking. Mm. And and by by adjusting regularly, you're releasing the pressure and keeping the whole thing stable, I think. And with every three years, you kind of, of course, it doesn't change every three years, but with some regularity, you probably get used to it as well. I think that yeah. there will always be some kind of change. People get bored rather easily. Yeah. <laughs> I've noticed they do, don't they? Um then let's move to these final two questions I'm going to close up with. I think we've covered a lot. I'm so thankful to, to, to speak with you on this. Advice for young people today in 2023. If there's a, uh, an 18-year-old uh, Philip here, or not necessarily an 18-year-old you, but there's an 18-year-old young person today, what advice would you bestow upon these people to try to navigate the world a little bit better. <laughs> oh crikey, that's you know it's a really hard question, and um, you know, I'd hate to be held responsible for the outcomes. Uh, like I think, um, think reflecting on my own eighteen-year-old self. Yeah, yeah. I think people often say this. Yeah, you just wish you had had more confidence. There's a lovely French saying actually. Um, si la jeunesse savait, si la vieillesse pouvait. If only youth knew what lay ahead of them, mm. and if only old old people could. Do what, do, which is you know. So when you're young, mm. you know. Uh, so those are the opportunities. If we only had more confidence when we were young to go ahead, you know, maybe we could accomplish even greater things. I, I do suspect that the younger generation is more pessimistic than my generation um, mm. in New Zealand and perhaps in Korea. You know, we grew up in a world where it was Francis Fukuyama was probably believed in. Um, the world was getting better. Yeah. My parents' life was worse than mine. My kids' life would be better than mine. We were going to get richer, um, taller, live longer, mm-hmm. you know, have better lives. That sense of optimism and confidence, I think, is largely not gone in New Zealand, but it's certainly eroded. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I, f- I, f- I find young people often much more fearful than I wish they were. Now, there may be good reasons for that fear and anxiety, but I'd like to just er- give, provide some assurance that, no matter how fearful the world looks, you know, they'll find a way. It'll be different to our way. Mm. Um, they won't necessarily be taller, richer, stronger than we were. Some of them will be. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they'll find a way, and, and it's up to them to kind of discover their strengths and opportunities and, and act on them. And I just, yeah, I'd say be confident. Mm. You know, find your way. Instill some confidence and believe because – that's yeah, Jurassic Park or something. Life finds a way, and, it, <laughs> and right. it will in this sense. I do wonder if there is a case that the world we talked about the civilizing process uh, in South Korea in terms of behavior and things like this, where the world has in some degree got safer, but the anxiety amongst people has increased. I mean, this is kind of maybe Stephen Pinker's argument, but people feel it's a little bit more dangerous. 
than the past. This might be social media. And so your advice might be, or what you've said might just be spot on that, you know, have some confidence and, and, and believe in what you're doing. Mm. 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 Um, I would like to end this, uh, Philip, with you asking a question about career for the next guest yeah. on the podcast. Please. Yeah. Well, it's a bit, uh, we referred to it earlier. I think the sense of career having done being so phenomenally successful yeah. in those three revolutions, what next? You know, how do you top that? Mm. I guess my question. Excellent. The question, uh, how does Korea top what it has already done? Excellent. The question for you comes from uh, Dr. Olga Fedorenko of Seoul National University. And her question is this. She's an anthropologist. Uh, her question, uh, she didn't know it was you. Uh, was, if you could change one thing about Korea, what would it be? <laughs> Change one thing about career. That was her question. Oh. Oh, I th think the biggest challenge career faces actually is the demographic challenge. I think I'd change the fertility rate. I don't know how you do that, right? But if you could. Go into the AI. Yeah, that's right. The They're magical. Yeah, but yeah. You know, in terms of like one single change that would have a huge transformative effect on the country, it might be that. You know, if we could find a fix for that, that'd be huge. In the 1960s, they were telling people, stop having kids. Yeah. There's all these posters from the Park Chang era, like two is enough. And like one boy, one girl, that's all you need. You remember how quickly that's Thomas Malthus? Yeah. 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 A long time ago, didn't it? Thank you very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Great fun. Please relax. Okay. Great. Thank you for your time. No, that was. That was delightful.